Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mindful Metal Jacket. I am removing my glasses, so there's no reflection, and so I look even sexier somehow. If you're just hearing the audio, you might want to go to YouTube and subscribe to my YouTube so you can see my sexy glasses-less face for a moment. Anyways, welcome to the podcast, everybody. This is Mindful Metal Jacket. I'm Joe List. First and foremost, I want to apologize for no episode last week. I uh, was surprised by how many people reached out, upset that there was no episode or looking for the episode. I appreciate it. Um, but yeah, it was just a matter of uh, being a little overwhelmed. I was on the road for a week. And um, if I can't do a quality episode, I'd rather uh, wait a week. So um, that was the reason, and that might happen every once in a while as we're um, back to work. Um, initially, I, before the podcast came out, I had like, uh, I don't know, I think like 12 interviews in the can, as we say, and then um, pandemic hit early on in the history of the podcast, and we weren't getting together. So um, now it's week to week. Um, but now that we're back, maybe we'll go into a studio and put a few in the can, but that's not for you to worry about. That's my business. Anyways, I uh, appreciate that folks are looking forward to the podcast every week and uh, we're back. And this is an exciting episode to me. I don't know if exciting is the word. I think it's, I was excited. Why am I backtracking? Um, it's a good episode. I was really um, excited. I was down in uh, Tampa, Florida, which was wonderful. Thanks to everyone that came out, all the love. It's nice to hear people enjoying the show. And um, met um, a comedy fan named Josh Cohen, and he was, is a therapist, and said, hey, I'd love to come on the show sometime. And I said, reach out. And then he did. And oftentimes, I just take forever to get back to those messages. But for whatever reason, we set something up, and he brought along his friend and uh, co-worker, Miranda Hughes. So today's guests are Josh Cohen and Miranda Hughes, who were wonderful. I don't want to butcher their resumes, but they give them right at the beginning of the interview. But they're both therapists, relationship therapists. Um, I didn't want to butcher them. Now I'm going to try. But Josh works for Planned Parenthood, and I believe Miranda is a sex therapist and relationship therapist. And it was just a fascinating conversation. I enjoyed the hell out of it, and. Sometimes, uh, I've mentioned this before, uh, in the middle of an interview, I'll go, oh my God, we're only 20 minutes in. This one just flew by. We talked for a half hour before we even got to kind of the notes and what we anticipated talking about. Is it too much eye contact with the camera? I feel like I'm really staring in there, so I'm trying to look away every once in a while. It's weird because to you, I'm staring at you, but to me, I'm just staring at a little black hole. And in some ways, aren't we all staring at a black hole? Let's enjoy our time here, hmm? Anyways, the conversation was great. I mean, we talked about um, uh, upbringing, uh, childhood trauma to some degree, abusive relationships, codependency, sex in relationships, and uh, porn. A little porn in there for everybody. So um, I think you're going to enjoy it. And just a few things. Uh, check out the YouTube. Subscribe if you're not subscribed. And I'm going back on the road. I'm in Omaha at the Funny Bone, April 23rd and 24th, May 15th in Austin. That's a big one for me, Paramount Theater. And um, if you're listening the day this comes out, this Saturday, April 3rd, I am in Bridgeport, Connecticut at the Mertens Theater with Greg Stone, past guest. And that's going to be fun. 
And uh, also, I want to say the comedy clubs in New York are back open. I'll be at the stand and the com- comedy cellar Friday night and the stand a bunch throughout the month, as well as the cellar and hopefully New York Comedy Club as well. So go support these comedy clubs. Yikes, my hair looks horrible. Um, go support these comedy clubs and check out uh, Joe and Ron on Talk Movies. If you're a movie fan, um, you might need to watch this podcast after because that one can get a little contemptuous, which I don't know what that word means. I think it might be. Yeah, contempt, chewous, angry. I don't know. I'm not as smart as I look, but I'll tell you who is smart. Miranda Hughes and Josh Cohen. And you're about to enjoy a wonderful conversation with them. I'm so grateful they came on the podcast. And um, I think we might have them back at some point. It was really uh, that good of a convo. So subscribe to the YouTube and come see me live at some point. I got dates in Omaha, Kansas City, Des Moines, Funny Bone, I think in May, Austin, and um, yeah, a bunch of fun stuff I'm really excited about. So do that. And of course, Tuesdays with Stories. And if you're a Tuesdays with Stories fan, we got a new editing film guy. We're going to take that Patreon to the next level. So plenty of Joe lists, probably more than you need. But most importantly, I appreciate that you're here right now. And here's a little quote. Since we talk relationships, this is a good one of my favorites. I don't know who came up with this originally, but I hear it all the time. I say it a lot. In your relationships, whatever relationships, say what you mean, but don't say it mean. Words to live by. Okay, enjoy this conversation with Josh Cohen and Miranda Hughes. Thank you. I love you. here we're live and uh i'm excited this is ex- first of all we're setting we're not setting history setting precedents creating history this is the first three-person mindful metal jacket episode of all time historic and this is also interesting because i don't really know either of you why don't we tell the folks <laughs> who you are how you got here well you got here because you came to side splitters and said i yeah, want to yeah, yeah, show yeah. And uh, I was desperate for guests, so I said yes. But, um, but you're not just anybody off the street. Are you? Are you both doctors? What's going on here? Tell me and the audience who the hell you guys are. All right. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I really appreciate uh, you having us. Uh, my name is Josh Cohen. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I have a private practice in West Hartford, Connecticut. I was actually in Florida just visiting some friends. I'm a huge fan of yours, and went to your show and. I've seen this podcast before and uh, being a mental health practitioner, I'm just a big fan of people talking openly about their mental health. So like I said, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I have a private practice and I'm a behavioral health specialist for Planned Parenthood in Connecticut for a couple different sites. So I'm a therapist on site at different Planned Parenthoods. I work with individuals with anxiety, depression, LGBTQIA, um, relationship issues. I work with couples and I work with families. Okay, I already have issues. I already have a bunch of questions. 
What's, sure, sure. what's the IA? There was, I feel like there was extra letters. I think Miranda would be an expert for that. So, um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Miranda, wanna... Miranda, introduce yourself and I'll, I'll swing back around and try to pick up these questions. <laughs> My name is Miranda Hughes. Uh, I am also a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I am a certified sex therapist in private practice in West Hartford, Connecticut as well. I have a lot of professional and personal experience with anxiety, so it's something near and dear to my heart. And you can imagine that uh, in the realm of sex and couples, anxiety comes up quite a bit. So that's that's what I do. Great, awesome! I'm so happy to have you guys because I love sex and I have anxiety. So, so <laughs> what? So, Miranda, what is the IA that Josh added to LBGTQ? Q. I uh, being intersex and A being asexual and ally. Okay, so what is intersex? Uh, intersex is when there is no uh, distinction. You're born with reproductive parts that aren't 100% one way, 100% the other way. So oh, you- interesting. Um, boy, I've got to, I don't mean this with any disrespect. I'm very grateful that I was born. Uh, whatever the opposite of intersect is and just uh i never didn't have to deal with any real confusion there is that okay to say that i'm I'm grateful for that i think that's all right right absolutely absolutely. um don't get me wrong i have plenty of uh sex uh anxiety and and (laughs) confusion i guess so maybe i shouldn't have said i have no confusion but not uh i didn't have to deal with any of the things we just mentioned if that makes sense oh god i'm so nervous okay no, I mean, so it, it, it's a great <laughs> point you know dealing with anxiety in relation to like who i am how i am my my body and everything like that it, it adds a layer of stress and anxiety for a lot of people um, yeah okay so i wanted to ask a question going back to your uh your, your role at planned parenthood is in like therapy, anxiety kind of thing? Exactly. I'm basically an on-site therapist there. So one day a week, I'll be in the office and uh, patients of theirs will kind of directly be referred to me um, if they're open to seeing me. And I just provide individual counseling, sometimes couples, sometimes families. Um, but yeah, just direct therapy uh, therapy for them. I see. Well, I've been donating $10 a month to Planned Parenthood for about five years. I don't know if you get any of that money. Um, but... <laughs> I, I don't, but I do appreciate it. That is a great thing. No, I love uh, Planned Parenthood. I went, I had genital warts was the reason I was there and uh, a lot of shame in there. No, they didn't offer me a therapist, but I could have used one mm-hmm. because I felt horrible shame and also fear that I was, you know, going to give my girlfriend now wife at the time cancer and also was just disgusting Mm. looking uh but they were so nice and the doctor could not have been friendlier and kind and she was uh just amazing and it was so discreet and wonderful and um i mean it's funny that i say discreet now i'm just talking about it on a podcast but um they were i didn't need discretion but they were uh willing to be discreet and that's when i started uh giving money to them so i love that and i appreciate it but i did go to a sex clinic one time, like the free clinic. So I also have herpes. I'm no one trick pony. And they, I remember filling the thing out. And one of the questions was, do you think you might have a problem with alcoholism? And I said, yes. And they sent me to a person. Is that kind of what you would do there? If somebody says yes, do I have a drinking problem? Yeah, exactly. They'll, they'll give the patient oftentimes different questionnaires, mental health screening tools, maybe a substance abuse screening tool or something like that. And then they'll reveal with them if they notice they're checking off a few of the boxes and talk about what's going on, see if they're seeing anybody, seeing if they're on any medications for that. And if it seems like there's something going on, then they're not seeing anybody, um, they'll give them my name. 
Yeah, that's great. So, I mean, that's just, you guys are doing service, it seems like to me. So appreciate that Um, because it is, I mean, first of all, it's nice to be, I'm also grateful to be living in a time where it feels like there's a lot of places to go for this stuff. I mean, when I got herpes, I was, or I guess I was like in a relationship shortly after that. But I know there's like forums for it and it's just so um, and, and warts and all that. stuff. I assume all of these things we're dealing with, all the letters we mentioned too, have all these online forums and stuff, which is so amazing because you can kind of privately go deal with all these things in some kind of Internet form. The, the flip side of that is you can also be bullied and shamed and destroyed via the Internet as well. Um, I don't know if that's a question, but that's just the thing I <laughs> threw out there. If anybody has anything to add to that, if not, we could just move on, I guess. It's 100% true. You can find pretty much anything you're looking for. Yeah, which to me, and I talk about this on this <clears throat> podcast all the time, is just connecting with somebody that's dealt with something you're dealing with is like enormous. And I think I've shared this story before. When I was in my early 20s, I started dealing with panic disorder, panic attacks, and just horrendous crippling anxiety and like almost daily panic attacks. And I went to see a therapist and she just said, oh yeah, you have panic disorder. And it was like, just that was like this massive relief that it was, somebody knew about it. They're like, yeah, that's what you have that thing. And that I always talk about it. I felt like I was suffering from Joe List's disease. And so just hearing, and that's the nature of 12 step programs is just like-minded people. Mm -hmm. Uh, So all, all of this stuff, but some of these things I imagine going into family therapy, it's a little bit trickier to find that um, relationship stuff. Do you guys do group therapy with relationships? Is that a thing of the past kind of group therapy? I feel like that was very popular 30 years ago. Is that still going on? There are definitely a lot of programs that do groups. There are a lot of private practitioners that do groups, but typically a group will be separate individuals um, coming in with maybe, like you said before, they all share uh, some kind of diagnosis or some kind of issue and are looking for um, similar treatment. With family therapy, I'll bring in the couple. If there are multiple partners, bring in multiple partners. If um, I'll bring in the family, I brought in uncles, aunts, grandparents, neighbors, whoever. Um, so I'll bring in a bunch of different people for, for that kind of stuff. Now, how, I mean, this is just, boy, I mean, like, it, I'm just interested, like, how yeah. long does it take? And I want to hear from both of you on this, I guess. How long does it take when you see a couple before? Is there ever a moment where like you're 30 seconds in, you're like, this guy's an asshole and she's right. Or is it, I mean, I, I assume there's, everybody's has a little bit of fault. Nothing's a hundred percent one person's fault. But I mean, we just, I just finished watching the new Tina Turner documentary on HBO. I mean, I imagine if I talk to these people for 30 seconds, I'd be like, this is an abusive piece of shit. I mean, does it ever happen immediately like that? And how often are you, this is going to be, a, I guess, a lot to volley back at you guys. How often is it you think one thing and then after a few sessions, you're like, oh my God, I was completely misunderstanding this. That part, that second <laughs> part of like, oh my gosh, I had this conception. Like you think you got it in 15 seconds and sometimes that may be right, but there's so much more, especially if, for me when I work with couples or when I used to work with families, I think I've got it nailed and it could be a month down the road and somebody's like, hey, by the way, did I mention this? And you go, ooh, my conceptualization just got blown out. So it's important to balance both what red flags am I seeing? What am I putting in the back of my head in terms of this might just be a really toxic, like painful, potentially abusive situation versus 
what am I coming in with my own ideas that may be completely untrue and I just don't know enough about the situation yet. Right. Exactly. Um, and how does this work? Too? And I guess I'm just curious about this too, because I just happened to watch a documentary about an abusive relationship, but does it ever happen? This might be just a deep question in some ways, but like, does it ever happen that you're, you're listening to a, a couple and then one of them is physically abusive, verbally abusive. And then I imagine you get to a point where you start hearing about their upbringing. I mean, I, I always think of like the idea of like hurt people, hurt people. Like, and again, I'm using Ike Turner as an example, like this is a story about Tina being abused and I'm not trying to say this is an empathetic character, Ike, but clearly he's coming from some amount of abuse. I'm just assuming I haven't read up. I assume he was uh, abused to some degree as a, as a child. I mean, is that something that you deal with in a relationship? I mean, how does that work? Does the partner have to then try to take that into consideration and, and deal with that? Or is it just you guys need to be separated, but you need your own therapy? I don't know if that's a lot to ask. or, or No, I mean, it, I, it totally makes sense. I don't think there's any therapist that would probably advocate to stay in any kind of abusive situation. Sure. And it's not justified by a, a traumatic past or something like that, but it can help you to understand where this person came from, how they learned to handle their own emotions or not handle their own emotions, their anxiety and stuff like that. And then um, if it actually is going on and we find out that there's abuse happening, domestic violence or something like that, the healthiest thing would be to get to a, a safe place for um, whoever the victim is there. And I imagine there is some um, benefit. And again, I'm like, I don't know anything about these things. I'm just kind of speculating, but I imagined understanding this, this abuser where they come from allows you to kind of understand this isn't my fault. I'm a, this person is, uh, this is, this is not about me personally and that shame, which I imagine comes with the territory of being victimized by abuse. Yeah. I think that, when you can separate yourself out from the experiences of your partner, that helps you get a different perspective. Even when we're talking about a healthy relationship that does not contain abuse, if you're coming in for therapy, the way I structure it uh, for my couples is they see me together first and then I see each one individually anyway, just to get your family history, just to get your relationship history, your sexual history, maybe your trauma history. Because even if you're coming to see me for communication, those all play a part in what's happening for the two of you together. And we need to separate out what's yours from what's hours as you and I together. Right. Yeah. My, my therapist always is talking about learned behavior. And this is a question I like to ask people too, because you guys are both doctors. Is that right? Master's degrees. Master's oh. degrees. Well then that's the end of this. Thank you for listening, <laughs> yeah. everybody. I appreciate we play one on uh, we play one on a podcast. No, I asked because my therapist, first of all, I was seeing him for like two years before <clears throat> I realized he's not a doctor. He's a, he's like a licensed social worker. And I was like, Hey, wait a second. Um, Cause I, you know, I alluded to some medicine or so I was just saying, you're a doctor. I kept saying you're a doctor. And he's like, I'm actually not a doctor. Um, but Most people, a, I think, just assume that therapists are doctors, I think. You know, a lot of times they'll just call up, hey, can I set up an appointment? They'll call me doctor and I'll say I'm not a doctor. Um, but it's just that immediate assumption that we're, we're doctors. Yeah, it just seems like anybody helping me is a doctor to mm -hmm. me. Um, mm -hmm. But so he he believes, and I'm, I'm curious because I think this is somewhat controversial, and I mean, not controversial, but debated, his thing that he said to me a long time ago was that like, there's like very severe, like bipolar. There's a few things that are 
hereditary, but he, he's a believer that almost all this stuff is learned behavior, anxiety, panic, even OCD and uh, alcoholism, all these things are actually learned behavior. Where are you guys on that? Randy, uh, Miranda, I'll say, sorry, I'll start saying somebody. So you guys, <laughs> part of the reason I do that, that individual session is I also need to know, is someone schizophrenic? Is someone, you know, have bipolar, are there genetic components? But also if your mom had something happen, let's say trauma, uh, when we're um, in our grad programs, we learn about multi-generational transmission. I had trauma, so I'm raising you as if you did too, because it was my lived experience. So that's what made me who I am. So yeah, you can see those patterns fall all the way down a family tree. Yeah. If the person isn't taking care of themselves. So if I have trauma and, and I'm, I worked on resolving it or um, my manifestation of my trauma or pain or whatever is, is looking like bipolar disorder and I'm working on it, I, I take care of myself, I kind of heal in some ways from it. I kind of stop the transmission or alter the, uh, the transmission kind of going down. Uh, but yeah, if you're going up in a family where, you know, one parent might be bipolar, the other has serious anxiety disorder, there's trauma, there's whatever, it's going to affect you in some way, there's no doubt. And then your response to stress and your response to the world in general is probably going to look pretty similar to the people you're raised by. Yeah. And what's amazing to me, and I do a bit about this now in my act, and you can tell me how accurate this bit is, but from what I understand, like formative years are sort of zero through seven. And so mostly what the way we react to things now as an adult, I'm about to be 39 years old. I, I, I snap or I get anxious or I start playing, whatever it is, I got anger and anxiety. That all comes from when I was two, three, four, five, six. Is that right? And then it becomes harder and harder to undo that after the age of seven, I imagine, particularly because you're essentially unconsciously doing things at the age of eight, nine, ten. There's not a lot of 10-year-olds going, boy, I really got to change my <laughs> patterns here. Is that about accurate? There's uh, one of where I kind of ground from is attachment theory. So you're going to be looking to your caregiver, your mom, your dad, whoever, for how do I react to things? So if I'm little and I'm being held and something happens and I look to my mom and my mom's freaking out, oh my God, I should be freaking out too. If I look to mom and mom's like, we're good, then we're good. And I'm gonna base those reactions off of it. So I'm gonna take how anxious I am about my surroundings from what's happening with my primary caregiver during those formative years. And yeah, you can work on it absolutely going forward after that, but it does lay the groundwork of like, how do I view myself? How do I view my surroundings? How do I view the people that take care of me? Will they be consistent in taking care of me? Yeah, yeah. How do I manage these feelings? What do I do with these feelings? What do I do with this situation? And we're very quick to filter through that old paradigm that was created zero to seven. And it's like, this is like a reminder. And then we, we get triggered back and we have to do a lot of work on a regular basis to, to kind of alter that and respond in a new way. Yeah, it just, and it just seems like such a, a task to try to do it. I, the last guest I had was um, Dr. Yeah. Um, uh, Judd Real Brewer. Doctor, I don't know if you guys know Judd Brewer. He wrote this book. Uh, we both listen. We both listen. Oh, great. Yeah. I mean, he's yeah. fantastic, but it, it really is difficult. I was just reading the book and it, it, it's so tricky. By the way, the punchline to the joke is if you guys have an eight-year-old and he sucks, you blew it. Like it's just too late. He's, he's an asshole, which I don't know how much truth there is to that exactly. But I do like the idea of somebody having a, like a nine-year-old who's like acting up and crazy and you're like, oh shit, it's too late. We, our, our kid sucks. Um, but I mean, that's, I guess what I'm trying to undo now with my own anxiety and, and stress. But my mother was a, is extremely 
anxious person and she has OCD and is very um, particular and, you know, terrible anxiety. And then my father is just, I think, also anxious, but extremely sort of quiet and seemingly um, a bit disconnected kind of in his own world, which that combination allows me to really ruminate on things. Um, Again, no question. Just, <laughs> just. Well, I mean, in you guys know family therapy with. terms, you know, I mean, we, there are different kinds of boundaries. There's enmeshed boundaries where there's too much closeness. There's rigid boundaries where there's too much distance, and then there's like kind of secure boundaries where we're right in the middle in a healthy way. Oftentimes, a parent who's really anxious, like you described your mom, there's going to be more of that enmeshed boundaries. Like you have a feeling and she has a feeling. It's like you don't have your own feeling and she stays calm, and that's just too much closeness and that leads to some serious issues and then your dad with more rigid more distant more disconnected um that leads to some of its own issues too because you have feelings and he's just aloof or absent or isolated or disconnected like you said yeah well it feels like and this is what my therapist has always said and maybe you've heard me if you listen to the podcast allude to i found these notes from therapy which i'd love to get your uh <laughs> y'all's opinions on I think I have them like favorite or somewhere I have photos I found my mother found these notes from I saw a therapist or an analyst when I was seven and mm. she took took notes on them and some of them are like it, it was interesting because first of all it was like emotional for me to see but it also kind of helped me kind of what we were talking about earlier to be like oh I've just been like this since I was at least seven which does take a little bit of that shame away because Part of me is not to just take advantage of having two therapists on my podcast here, but um, but there is an amount of shame of like, God, I had good parents. I, I'm successful. I'm healthy. And yet I'm still riddled with this anxiety and fear. So finding these things of like, oh, this is how I was raised to be or um, sort of created does help a little bit. Then you're still stuck dealing with all those things. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, Miranda could probably agree where it, a lot of clients come in and they first say, I'm broken. I, I need you to fix me. There's something wrong with me. I've always been like this. And they take it. There's so much shame and there's so much weight they put on. Like, it, it, that's just how they were born as if they were, you know, the doctor handed them and said, you here, you're, you're given someone with anxiety issues and panic disorder and this and that. But it, a lot of it is learned. Most of it. Is, is learned or a response to the, to the environment. Yeah, so that's interesting. And Miranda, maybe you can talk about this a little. Like, so I developed panic disorder and panic attacks and started having like really severe panic attacks in my early 20s where I would be on the ground and, and shaking like violently and go about a half hour, heart pounding and, and just completely out of control. And those were like, I would say that I have like anxiety attacks and panic attacks. We have anxiety attacks where I'm obsessing about a tooth or some kind of hypochondriac episode. And then I have panic attacks where I'm literally on the floor, legs are shaking, like it looks like I'm severely ill. But my parents never had panic attacks like that. So it's interesting that it's learned behavior, but no one in my family ever had panic attacks to that extreme. How does that come about, if that's answerable? Yeah, I think it's answerable because I panic attacks. We're talking about it got to a point where like the, the lid's been blown off the container. Like there's no stopping it now. The anxiety that builds up to it and the patterns of not being able to regulate that anxiety, that's what's learned. The panic attacks push you one step beyond. And the what I try to say to my clients is like panic attacks will convince you 
brain, body, all of you, that you are dying. Like this is the end. This is how we die. And, and your body responds appropriately, but it's stemming from anxiety and just it too much body shuts down. Can't do it. So it's really important to be able to notice the connection between the mind and the body, which I know we talk about all the time, but when you feel it in those types of terms, like you have people that come in and say, oh, it's just in my head. I have panic attacks. I get anxious, whatever. If I took your blood pressure during a panic attack, we're not just saying, oh, it's in your head. This is quite literally serious as a heart attack. You're going to have medical manifestations of physical or of mental anxiety and panic and things like that. So it's important to kind of, yeah, nobody taught me to have a panic attack, but I also wasn't taught how to regulate that anxiety and bring myself back down so that didn't happen either. Right. Yeah. I'm, exactly. I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. I've, t- I've taken it a step further, I guess. But may, so maybe if you listen to last week's episode with, with Judd, we, I kind of talked about how my anxiety somehow manages. And this blew my mind that I could start having like really physical pain, like in my tooth, not from even grinding my teeth, but from actually it's just uh, this weird um pain there and it's like not a uh, what do you call it uh, acute pain it's just a general pain and then a doctor tells me there's nothing wrong with your teeth and it goes away and it's like i have no pain for about a week and then all of a sudden i got stomach cramps or a headache and i've had so many which is like magical in a way to me that and that that's kind of stopped through therapy and all this stuff um so i have progressed but how does that work exactly i mean i asked Dr. Brewer about it a little bit. I feel like I didn't get a completely straight answer that like, how can you have stomach pains, uh, diarrhea, headaches, migraines, just from thinking? I mean, is that so I guess that's the body just reacting to these thoughts as though it's you're in danger. Is that basically right? Yeah, and it's acting like thinking is a separate thing. But it's all like Miranda said before, the body mind, every system in the body is kind of connected and intertwined. So as you go to that fight or flight response, you get really stressed, really overwhelmed. Every system in the body is kind of uh, activated at that point. Right. And for you, if you're not processing through it in the right way, um, it might end up manifesting in a stomach ache, in a headache, in a nagging toothache. That's signaling you need to do something. You need to do something different um, than you're doing. Right. And and have you guys read... Dr. Sarno, do you know Healing Back Pain, that mm-hmm. yeah, book? Yeah. I mean, that basic idea is about that your, your brain-body connection is creating some kind of pain to have you focus on as opposed to thinking about whatever happened in your childhood. Is there any truth? Because I know he's a very controversial doctor, but that book made a tremendous amount of sense to me. And every time I've heard him talk. It does give you a focus, right? It gives you something to take your mind off of anything. It doesn't right. necessarily mean it has to be as deep as a child, but when you're focusing on your tooth, for example, does it kind of take the edge off the anxiety? Cause I'm only worried about the tooth. I'm not worried about my work day, you know, my other pains, anything else that's come up. I'm very focused on the, I'm hyper focused on the tooth and that gives me an outlet for my anxiety. So that's, right. something that's worth looking at. Yeah. And it's, but it, it's so deeply subconscious. This is yeah. fascinating because in my mind, I mean, my present mind, my conscious mind, I'm like, I would give anything to not be thinking about this tooth, mm-hmm. but obviously my subconscious is like, no, fucking think about your tooth. So you don't have to think about, you know, your dad didn't call or whatever it is or whatever right. show. Um, I do want to get to, cause you mentioned talking about relationships and dependency and I've steered the first half of this 
nothing no, to do with great. relationships or sex. But so I just wanted to throw a, a few examples from my, my seven-year-old, uh, when I was seven, my analysis here and see what you, what you guys think. Um, uh, okay, Joe appears to have a good number of phobias. He's very immature and needs to be given some responsibility and have some limits set. He needs quality time with his father and needs to do, quote, boy things that should be done together. And then he, uh, it says, um, uh, oh, where is it? Um, he asks about cancer, AIDS, and graves constantly. His anger seems to come out in his drawings. And uh, he will never talk about any certain things. Example, allergy shots. No one likes them, but he will refuse to even mention them or gets mad if we talk about them. What, what, what's going on there? What, where, where could my parents have done a better job? I mean, what are you, what are you seeing there? How, how did this come to be that just seven years in my life, I'm obsessed with AIDS? It was 1989, by the way. So That's it was, why. Yeah. yeah. So there was, it wasn't like I was just pulling this out of nowhere. But I was um, too. Yeah. yeah. So it was scary. And then, I mean, I've talked about this before, and I don't mean disrespect, but they brought Ryan White out, who was like a 12 year old kid. And they're like, it could happen to anyone. And I was like, I fucking hate this kid. Yep. <laughs> like, like I'm, I was, you know, a couple years younger than him. And I'm going, what the hell? I don't want to get AIDS. He was literally, his autobiography was the first book I read and it came out right after he died. So when you say, what could my parents have done better? They, this was completely, you ran into it. Like, I remember I saw him on Donahue because I was homesick one day. It had yeah. nothing to do with the messages my parents gave me, but all of a sudden everything is terrifying because yeah. he was my age and identified with him. And, you know, phobias, where do they come from? They don't necessarily come from your parents saying you should be afraid of something, but you encounter something and you're just like, that's not okay. I'm not a fan. Let's not encounter that again. Right. And like Miranda said, like you could watch the TV, like someone could have watched, um, you know, about the moon landing, start to worry about aliens and whatever. And all of a sudden that becomes a thing. But how do your parents respond to you? How do they kind of hold you as you're feeling anxious? You get this worry that just popped up, this concern. And do they calmly present to you in a way that you feel, okay, it's not that big of a deal? Or do they respond in a way that just kind of keeps you stuck in that anxiety and keep finding other things to fixate on? Um, now it's this, then it's that, then it manifests in this way, and now it's something else. Well, I think it, as, as memory sort of ser serves, and it happens a little bit even now, currently, I think my family, first of all, I try to be empathetic that a lot of people weren't taught how to deal with these things and deal with feelings. But yeah. there was a lot of distraction was their method would go. Don't worry about it. You're not going to AIDS. What about the Red Sox game? We're going to the Red Sox. Soon. But that maybe even like triggered me to be like, they don't want to tell me. They know I'm going to get AIDS. They're trying to switch it to baseball here instead of going, listen, that's un I understand your fear. Um, you know, it is can be scary, but that's not going to happen to you. We're going to protect you. We're going to make sure that doesn't happen. It really only happens to adults or whatever. Uh, it was more just don't worry about that. Let, let's watch another TV show, something like that. Is I mean, does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I mean, to sit with a kid who's really anxious and panicking over something, you have to be kind of patient. You have to be kind of calm. You have to say kind of what you said there. It's a lot easier to just say, hey, let's go. Out, let's just go get some ice cream. Come on. How about some ice cream? It'll get your mind off of this or whatever. Um, but sometimes it kind of works a little bit, but it really doesn't soothe the kid in the way that they need to be soothed. Mm hmm. Right. Oh, go ahead, Miranda. The parents comfort discussing those types of things too. Like my parents definitely didn't sit down and say, here's what AIDS is. Here's why you're not going to be exposed to it potentially. Here's what, here's the like grounding principles of why this isn't a thing you can be anxious about because they weren't comfortable talking about it. They didn't feel like they knew about it. They were trying to avoid it. And again, ice cream is a lot easier to go with. 
Yeah, which leads to alcohol. <laughs> um, you know, you kind of get that, uh, I guess, reward system, as we talked about last week of, you know, I, I worry. And so I drink. So I'm not worried. And then the result is uh, I hate myself. And then that loop goes on and on. Um, OK, so you mentioned some things you guys wanted to talk about or, or I guess are able to talk about is in your profession is um, anxiety and fear-based relationships and how that manifests in relationships, codependency. And this is just a base level question. What do people mean when they say codependent? It's one of those terms I hear and, and people, I probably even use it and I never really know an actual definition of, of like codependency or what, whatever, whatever um, use of that word. What, what are people talking about? Yeah, you know, there are many um, traits of codependency that we could talk about in a second, but in a general way, it's basically someone focusing on someone outside of themselves. It could even be your pet, but focusing on outside of yourself and engaging in a pattern of behaviors that end up resulting in self-neglect, you know, end up in you end up not being taken care of. Your needs aren't taken care of. It's all about the other. It's all about the other. I see. Okay. Cause it, yeah, it sounds like why don't, to me, I'm like, why don't they just say a dependent relate? That's how I, I guess I always perceived it as dependent. I depend on this person without this person, I would be nothing. So it, there's a element of that, I guess. Yeah. But really they're just so maybe not obsessed, but trying desperately to help this person in one way that they've neglected their own needs, which I'm, I'm just right. repeating what you just said. Essentially. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Confirming that I've got yeah, it's a pattern learned very early on, but yeah, exactly. There's a lot of, like you said, there's a lot of in media and music, there's this idea of, uh, I can't live without you. I die without you. You're my everything. I'm, uh, I, I'm whole because of you and all that. So there a lot of like these messages end up kind of being supportive of codependency sometimes. Yeah, it's interesting. I've always talked about that as like, I guess, an idea of possibly a bit. Or I just kind of think like a comedian, but I've always thought that of like, I'm nothing without you. I can't live if living was and I've been in relationships where I've been obviously deeply in love. I have a life partner and we're love. But I have thought I'm like, well, I'm a lot without you. I mean, like, I, I want you to be with me. But if you left me, I would survive. I would, you know, I have a lot of friends and, uh, you know, and work. So I, I guess I haven't um, been in a codependent relationship, which is good. Is it possible to be way too self-centered to be codependent? Because I feel like I'm always thinking about myself, which is like, it feels like the opposite of codependence. I mean, does that make sense? Well, well, there is the opposite of codependence, which is more of like an avoidant style. It's called like counter-dependent, where it's like, I don't need anybody. I don't want anybody. I'm totally good on my own. That, those aren't bad things to say. To say, like, I don't need someone, that's actually healthy. You know, you want to be with someone. You shouldn't, you know, ideally you don't need to be with someone. But if that's coming from a place of, like, when you have to be with someone, you're not able to be emotionally available, you're not able to be vulnerable, you're not able to be intimate and connect, then it's, you know, problematic if you're saying, I don't need anybody, I'm totally good on my own. Right. And, and what, it's probably learned behavior again, like, what makes somebody into that, that codependent? Is that learned behavior as well? I mean, we all know people that, I mean, I have friends that are in like a nine year relationship, they break up and within like a week, they're in another serious mm -hmm. relationship and they're in like three serious relationships over the course of 25 years. What well, leads to that? I mean, uh, Miranda, if you wanna take that one. Yeah, uh, 
in terms of, you know, you're going to jump right in because what happens if I'm alone? Is there a fear of abandonment? Speaking about anxiety, am I terrified to be by myself? What thoughts are going to come up if I'm anxious and I'm anxious about being alone and now I'm alone? Oh my God, my thoughts are going to run the show. And if I have been codependent, I'm able to avoid my anxiety by focusing on you. If you're gone, I have to focus on myself. And that's a horrifying prospect. So I would much rather jump right into somebody else and all my worlds can be about you. I don't have to look at me. Right. Now, is it possible to be codependent with an entire family with like 12 people? Because I mean, there's people that I know that are like, they're always thinking about talking about their sister, their other sister, their brother, their husband, and, and kind of solving right. everybody's problems, but their own. Is that codependency also? Or is what's that? Yeah, because like I said before, it's kind of like that enmeshed idea of like, there's no separation. There's no like individuality there. And that's sometimes what happens with codependency is I have no value unless I'm with somebody. I have no value unless you're around giving me praise, giving me acknowledgement, giving me what I need. Um, so yeah, you could be codependent with uh, your whole family, it seems like, but you know, they might consider it more enmeshed with your family. Um, what, what does that mean exactly? Sorry, enmeshed. Keep in mind that I am a moron and I think a lot yeah, of people no listening. Miranda, no do you want to explain or you want? Sure. <laughs> we need layman's terms. Enmeshment kind of it stems out of a family's response to anxiety. Do I want you super close so that we make decisions together? Do I want it so that if I'm upset, you're upset, we're all upset? We're responding emotionally rather than logically. We can't really separate those two out when we're together as a family because we're one big thinking group, right? Or one big feeling group. If I'm going to go do my own thing, that can feel super threatening because you're not nice and close with the enmeshed family. Yeah, so it's interesting. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm making this about me, but hopefully a lot of people can relate to it because I feel like that is how my family operates, kind of a big Boston that kind of family, my, like, I, I always laugh, like, I'll hear people say, we're going to have a, um, a family reunion. I, I'll talk to friends. I'm, not, I'm gone this week. And I'm going to a family reunion. And I always think that's so funny because I'm like, my family was together every single Sunday and most Saturday. I mean, whole extended 25 people always still now. I mean, when I call, I, one of my favorite jokes ever was on the American office with uh, Mindy Kaling. I think BJ Novak's character leaves for a while and he comes back and he says, what have you been up to? And she says, Kim Kardashian got married and whatever, Barbara <laughs> Streisand. And he said, but what's going on with you? And she says, I just told you. And it's like an amazing joke, but that's how I feel with my family. I'll say, what's going on with you? And it's, well, this person did that and this person's fighting. And I'm like, well, what about you? I don't understand. And they're like, well, that's what's going on with me is my sister did this and my cousin did that. And something that I mean somehow I don't want to self-diagnose myself but I move 250 miles away and I visit occasionally and check in once in a while is that the opposite of codependence I mean how does that work or just me seeing I don't want to be part of this thing that could just be a healthy boundary you know what I mean it's it doesn't have to be the opposite it could just be this isn't really working for me this, this level of closeness or lack of identity or independence or whatever not really working for me so put up a healthy boundary and you're taking good care of yourself where you're at. And it doesn't, doesn't mean it's the opposite because that would be problematic too. Yeah. If you decided never to talk to them again, they'd call it a cutoff. And what's funny is that's not, I I'm over the anxiety. That's I'm so anxious about seeing you that I can't see you at all because there's right. no in between. Yeah. That's yeah, kind I can't of what, tolerate being with you kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to um, separate something I'm working on in my own life. It's going other people's anxiety doesn't have to be, 
my anxiety. I don't have to take that on. I could just go, wow, that's a bummer. That stinks for those people, but that's not happening to me. It's sort of empathetic without it seeping into my a boundary is what I guess that's I'm trying cool. to yeah. say. Yeah, you know, one thing about codependency, they're really scared. Uh, uh, I, I like to, I don't want to say like I'm codependent kind of thing. It'd be like, I learned how to be codependent based on the environment I grew up in or something like that. So you kind of remove the label a little bit uh, because it can be, really heavy to take that on as like, I'm codependent, you kind of end up operating that way. But one thing that's uh, common is that fear of separation. You know, your partner leaves for five minutes. It's like, oh my God, are they gonna come back? Do they still like me? I haven't heard from them in a few hours. What are they thinking? Uh, do they say, am I boring them? Do they wanna come back to me? Whatever. Separation doesn't just include physical separation, but emotional too. Um, where like you said, if someone else is feeling anxious, it's okay for them have their own feelings to be a unique individual that has their own I don't have to take that on with them and get so wrapped up in whatever they're feeling and they don't have to feel exactly what I'm feeling we can be separated and have healthy boundaries there right yeah that's fascinating the idea of these like healthy there's certain it feels like most families have these weird sort of sick thing I mean like uh, I'll meet a family every once in a while. They just all seem to like each other and they see each other every few weeks and there's no codependence. And mm -hmm. you're like, how the hell did this happen? Like what's going on here? <laughs> it, it, it's like fascinating to me. Um, but if, so it feels like every family has some quirks and stuff, but some are considerably more sick than others, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's a lot of trauma. There's a lot of like, you know, dis dysfunctional patterns and there's a lot, there's uh, a lot of lack of education on stuff. You know, your parents, um, a, a lot of older people aren't thinking about these ideas as much. We're taught these ideas at young ages, mindfulness, meditation, yoga practices, self-care, inner child work, all this stuff. Um, Something I'm really interested in, and I'm actually writing a a film about it right now that will probably go nowhere. But um, the idea, I really am fascinated by the idea because you kind of talked about this generation and the last generation and it feels like we're progressing in a good way that people are more mindful of um, psychology and, and um, upbringings and learned behavior and all this stuff. So I feel like there's gonna be more and more people of, of my generation and certain more so the younger generation, I think that are kind of confronting their parents on these things. What is it like? I mean, you guys deal in, in, in couples therapy and family therapy. What is it like? I'm 39 years old. My parents were young when they had me. So they're in their early, early 60s. I mean, what's it like if I go there and go, hey, I got OCD. I got alcoholism. It's all learned behavior. You fucked me. What, what is this? <laughs> what is that? That's such a fascinating idea to me. And then I leave the room and they're left there. I don't know what the question is exactly. I am nobody steal this because I'm writing a movie about it. But what is <laughs> what is that? I mean, it's an, the idea of being like I need to address this because it's causing a lot of anxiety and stress and anger for me. Mostly anger, I get. Is it wrong to put that on their lap? Is it good? I mean, is it what happened? I don't know if this is a question. I'm volleying it back to you, Miranda. You look like you have something to say there. It is. <laughs> I, yeah. It. it 
when we went through grad school, my roommate and I had a deal that if anything happened to one of us, the other one would completely destroy the computer and any notes because we had to be writing on our own families the entire time we were in school. Right. I wasn't welcome at family gatherings without, I swear to God, if you bring up what happened when dad was 12 again, you need to leave because it was constantly drudging up this stuff, right? So you in therapy individually would work with, potentially would work with your therapist to figure out, is it helpful to address them? face-to-face? Is that something I need? How do I want that to look? If I need to address them in my mind and not directly, how does that look? Do I write them a letter? Do I kind of work through it with what they call an empty chair technique kind of thing? Or do I need to like come to terms with the best, they did the best they can with what they had and it, can I move past it without directly speaking to them? And nothing is a given, you know, you don't necessarily have to confront them. You don't necessarily have to not. What's going to work best for you? What's going to work best for your family? And then if you decide to talk to them, I mean, it's a good idea to have it happen in session, right? But what do you want that to look like? How do you make that structured in a way that you're not going to be like, remember when I was five? Thanks for that. You completely screwed me up from there on out, right? How do you make it a constructive conversation to get what you need out of it, to get those needs met that were missing back when you were, however? Right, right. Yeah, it's a great point because if there's certain feelings coming up for you and it's like, oh, geez, like to, I'm blaming my parents for these feelings, I think there, there's definitely ways you could soothe yourself there. But if your parents are still behaving in certain ways that are maybe violating certain boundaries, behaving, and you could take care of yourself now, like Miranda just said, telling them what you need right now. And that could be really, really great. Maybe not even having to confront them for everything from the past. But like Miranda said, there are ways to maybe talk about things that have happened. Um, but it might take some like professional help, like, you know, really working on your own stuff because we could easily get very triggered and then it can turn um, pretty toxic. Right. I mean, first of all, this is proving I have a great therapist because he says all these same things. Or maybe it's proving that you guys are great therapists because um, I know he's a great therapist. But um, <laughs> no, it's interesting. There's a in, in sobriety circles, there's a saying, uh, say what you mean, but don't say it mean. Um, which I love is that idea of you can't just be like, fuck you, dad, or whatever. But you can say, man, I, I really could have used a little more help there. I would have, if you could have said this or, or hugged me or done this, that would have been really beneficial. Um, but like you said, you have to kind of weigh that of like, how much is this going to destroy or upset this person? And I can't change it anyways. We can't go back to, you know, 1989 and have someone say, you're not going to get AIDS, pal. Here's a, you know, here's a hug. So it is a, a tricky thing, I guess. Um, and hopefully people are getting something out of this and it's not just me. No, but you, <laughs> and you bring up a good point because sometimes we'll say something, dang, when, when I was six years old, I wish you hugged me more. I wish you were calmer. I wish uh, we connected more and played more or something like that. And we're talking about something in the past that maybe we could still have met right now. I could ask my dad, you know, hey, we, I know we didn't hug a lot then or it kind of bothered me then that we didn't. You know, I, I would really appreciate one now. I don't, you know, maybe we could find a way to connect now rather than just not saying it's a bad thing to ever focus on that or, you know, get some insight from that, some awareness from that, maybe talk about it. But there are ways that you can make a change right now, too, that could be really helpful. Yeah, no, that's something I had to do in my life. And it's been beneficial. As Pete Townsend wrote, let's get together before we get much older. Hmm? Teenage Wasteland. Um, Bob O'Reilly is the name of the song. Yeah, I have yeah. to say Bob O'Reilly because other people will email me and go, that's not the name of the song, you idiot. Um, but okay, so let's talk about sex a little bit because you mentioned that, um, I forget in what context, I have notes, but I can't read them because I just scribbled them down. Oh, how it manifests. Just anxiety and sex. Co codependency, anxiety, and how it manifests sexually. What, 
what were you thinking in that? How does that work? And why do I feel shame even when I have regular old sex with my wife? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> what's, what's going on there? Half the reason that that's my specialty is uh, because there is so much shame around just mentioning it. But the last year has been super interesting in terms of codependency or enmeshment or things like that. We were forced to stay with our partners for a long period of time. So I've had plenty of couples be like, oh my God, I think we're codependent now because we've spent so much time together, but it's not the same fusion. It's a matter of circumstance. What is happening though, is that closeness and right on top of each other and anxiety is killing desire. So sex for a lot of folks isn't happening right now because you need that space in between to have attraction for your partner. When you don't get that, because you're right on top of each other because you're in the middle of quarantine, uh, desire can, for some folks, go out the window. Yeah, it's interesting because at the beginning, we ended up straightening it out, but at the very beginning of pandemic in like late March and April was the first and only time in my life that I was like, I can't perform sexually right now because A, I was freaking out because I'm like, are we all going to die? And it was just this thing of uh, when can we leave the house? What's up with the economy? And also there is the thing, and I don't know, maybe this is vain, but when you're just kind of not getting dressed, we're not showering, we're kind of wearing pajamas and you're sitting there and you're anxious, it's hard to shift into that thing of like, here we go. I mean, for me, a lot of desire comes out from like, you're dressed up, you're out and, and you're um, attractive to other people. So that makes you more attractive to me. We're going out and you're part of the world. But when you're just in the house constantly, it does take away and you're kind of like, like I said, that was the only time in my life I've been like, I mean, I can't physically, I'm unable to have sex right now. But it's good to know that was relatively normal and only lasted a couple weeks. I'm, I'm back, baby. Yeah, there was this original <laughs> thought that the pandemic, lockdown, people are going to have way more sex. They're not going to leave the bedroom because they don't have to, you know, kind of thing. But it ended up going being the opposite, which is um, really interesting, like Miranda had said. But like you said, Joe, like, with that anxiety, with maybe a lack of self-care happening, um, obsessing about something else, not really being in the moment, yeah, it's going to kill sex. It's going to make it really tough to perform and really tough to connect in, in that way. Right. Yeah, it's weird. So, I mean, like, is it because of our education here in the United States and, and sex ed and stuff? I mean, like Europe feels so free form and all this stuff with nudity. I mean, I watch a lot of foreign movies like nudity is just nothing. Sex scenes are just in there still now. I mean, I literally I've been married for years. I've been with my wife 10 years. We have just regular old missionary sex. And afterwards, it's like, I'm sorry. I don't know what's wrong with me. I hate myself. <laughs> you know, I mean, like I have this feeling of like, oh, God, what are we doing? It's just like an embarrassing in general. Um, I mean, Miranda, you're making a face. I maybe I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but there's a moment. There is a thing of like, oh, what is this? I'm, I'm an asshole. I'm gross. Um, I, I want to make it clear. I'm not like actually an asshole. We're having consensual <laughs> sex it's fine but like i still have this icky feeling of like oh my god what's getting into me the the way that i structure that session when i work with people around how they were brought up what messages did they get around sex what were their first relationships look like i would dig deep on that because you know we get messages when you're a little kid and you pull off your diaper and run around the house you're not thinking, I really shouldn't do this. I really should be more modest. I should cover up. You're just running free. Somewhere along the line, you get a message that that's not okay. Somewhere along the line, you may get a message that masturbation is not okay, or that this type of sex is not okay, or that sex in general is not okay. But when I ask most people what messages they got around sex, they say, I didn't get any. 
until you start asking certain questions and they're like, oh man, yeah, maybe I did. And chances are for the people that I work with, they weren't always like, it's awesome. It's great. It's a good thing. Go for it. A lot mm -hmm. of them turn into shame. Right. Well, it feels like a lot of, I mean, I got no formal sex education from my family. It's another thing people talk about the talk or it's so awkward with your parents or whatever talk. And I'm like, and my wife says the same thing. I got zero mm -hmm. talk from anybody. I mean, like literally nobody. And, and that made it tricky to get laid for lack of a better term. I had no game, no understanding, no confidence that I could. I mean, I have a story of my, one of my dear friends was like, you, you could get laid. Cause I'm like, I can't, I don't know how to do it. He's like, no, you're like a relatively normal looking guy. He's like, you're a funny guy, you're a comedian. Like you could go have sex a lot. And I was like, what, are you sure? I mean, nobody ever gave me any amount of confidence and nobody gave me any kind of talk about what you do, how you do pregnancy, anything like that. It was just sort of um, in the air of a lot can, a bad can come, STDs, I guess you'd kind of hear about and pregnancy you'd kind of hear about. Um, but there wasn't any kind of sit down at any point in my life anyways. I don't know how many, what percentage of people are like that and what did get some kind of education tons of people tell me they never had any sort of formal talk. They got it at the back of the school bus. They got it through porn. They got it through their first experience with a partner that knew more than they did. They don't get formal education. We still tend to shy away from that. I mean, there are people that just work with parents around what are you comfortable telling your kids? What message do you want to have? And uh, back away as I would work with parents and say, they're going to get a, a message from somewhere. Do you want to steer the boat on what message they're getting? Because if so, then we need you to be Johnny at the back of the bus to giving them a message about sex. Right. And then beyond sex is just affection and connection. Like how do your parents connect to each other in terms of their affection and, and closeness to you also, things like that. And then you said before, Joe, just shame in general. You know, it's not like we're, we're not gonna like walk into the bedroom door, you know, walk into the bedroom and suddenly leave our shame and our thoughts that we're not enough. That way, I mean, we question our performance on anything we ever do. We're gonna enter there. And this is a very, you know, sacred space and it feels like you know for a lot of people they have to really perform here or, or something like that to get their value their worth make sure they're pleasing their partner or something shame comes right in with you right that's a good point because i mean i, I do everything to that degree I, I talk to the grocery store clerk and i'm like i think they hated me i don't know what yeah. went wrong there i think i ruined this podcast i think i i said that <laughs> that was stupid so it makes sense to kind of carry that thing in that idea of like everybody hates me. I'm a piece of shit. And I mean, which comes again from childhood to some degree, I think from not being able to make people happy, dealing with parental anxiety and depression, this idea of like, oh, I'm probably the cause of this. Maybe that's carried into, again, I'm fascinated with therapy. I want to be a therapist secretly. So <laughs> in my mind, I'm like, oh, that probably has something to do with it. This idea of like having parents that are depressed, that's because of me. Surely they're depressed or anxious because of me. And so I'm carrying that into a sexual relationship, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it might go away for however long your actual sexual experience is. Once the arousal kicks in, you might get into a different mindset or something like that, but it creeps back in probably pretty quickly um, after it's all over. And yeah, you, like you said, you probably carry it from you know childhood past experiences and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. No, during sex, I'm completely in it. I'm like, this is fantastic. It's like a moment later that I'm like, oh my God, I should kill myself. <laughs> um, not literally. I always feel like I have to say that to therapists. And then <laughs> my therapist always goes, no, I know. Like he can, he, he's like, no, I'm, I'm talking to you. I'm aware that you're not uh, mm -hmm. suicidal right now. Um, 
because he's a good therapist, like I said. Um, but yeah, most people do that. Most people they'll use alcohol, sex, whatever, and they'll feel regulated when they're actually doing engaged in something like that. But once they're back in themselves or whatever for a second, that old story comes up pretty strong. Right. And so what when you talk about anxiety, maybe we're already touching on it, but you were talking about anxiety and its role in sex. Like what did you have in, in mind um, when you said that as like a topic, like where does that lead? How does it make a, a difference? What they say to us a lot in sex therapy school is anxiety and orgasm can't exist in the same space. And it's so easy because you're supposed to be in your body for sex, right? This is something we're going to feel, but it's so simple to jump into your head and be like, oh, <laughs> am I anxious about this? Am I anxious about how my partner, you know, uh, something else that was said was like, men are always concerned. Am I hard enough, lasting long enough? Is she happy? And she's going, is my chin up? Are my boobs together? Is my stomach flat? And no one's saying, does this feel good? Because we're right. so driven by the anxiety of what our partner's experiencing. And then what are the chances that if we are interested in orgasming, that that's going to happen if we're so stuck here that we can't feel what's going on? Right. Well, so this, I'm going to get really personal here, but this is how my brain works with sex. So when I'm having sex, I'm completely obsessed with my wife enjoying it and having an orgasm, which is, that's the main thing I want. That's the biggest turn on to me is her having an orgasm. So I'm focused on that hundred percent. So I'm unable to even concentrate on what I'm doing. I'm trying to focus on that. Then once she does, now I feel she must be done and so now I feel like I'm doing a disservice to her by continuing to have sex after her orgasm because I know what it feels like to have an orgasm. As soon as I have an orgasm, I don't even want to think about it. Sex is like the furthest thing from my mind. I literally have an orgasm. I used to do a joke about this too, where I'll have an orgasm and be like, I got to call my mother. I got to call uh, or whatever is on my list. Mother makes it weird. I got to call the <laughs> dentist. I got to, you know, I got to cancel my appointment. That's on my mind. So I assume her mind is working the same way. So for three quarters of it, I'm obsessed with her having an orgasm. Then she has an orgasm and I'm obsessed with, this is gonna start to hurt. I assume her vagina is not gonna continue to wanna be involved in this situation because she's already had an orgasm. I don't know the anatomy that well, but at that point, I'm just thinking, she must be thinking about groceries while I'm sitting here, you know, having sex with her. Does that, that yeah. make any sense? Yeah, I mean, that's a great point because couples don't really talk during sex, you know, like Miranda was saying, what does this feel good for you? How are you feeling? Would you like me to do anything different? Anything like that? And they don't talk after, because that would be a great question to ask your wife and say, hey, after you have that orgasm, how do you feel afterwards? Are you just thinking about the grocery list? Are you thinking about, I don't know, a podcast or something like that? Probably a but podcast. having that conversation, and that's very uncomfortable for a lot of couples. You know, they come in the office, you say, how's your sex? Like, they don't, they don't want to talk about sex a lot of times. Um, they just want to talk about maybe their communication difficulties, which aren't not, not, not to minimize or dismiss that, but that's just one piece of the puzzle here. A lot of people are very, very uncomfortable talking about sex. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been in therapy for four years. I've never talked about sex one second. This is my first talking to therapists about sex. <laughs> Miranda, you're going to say something. I, I cut you off. No, no. They, uh, people will come see me because I'm a sex therapist, right? It's in the name of what I do, and I'm a certified sex therapist, and I'll get to 55 minutes of a 60 minute session and go, so do you guys want to talk about sex or no? And they look like horrified. I'm just kind of assuming that's why you wanted to see me because we try to avoid it at this point to talk about it because it doesn't. And what I say to my clients all the time is I talk about sex like people talk about pizza toppings. So it's not gonna, it's not gonna seem tense in my office because that's what I do like all right. the time. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, that's I mean to relate it to like comedy. People are like, I don't know how you do that. That must be crazy. Especially you have anxiety. And I'm like, well, I do it two or three times a night for 20 years. It's not even. It's like a joke. No pun intended. I'm like, I don't, it's not. It doesn't even cross my mind to go up there. So um, I guess I relate to that. And the idea of people are like, you must not want. That must be hard. And yeah. uh, it's not. No, it's second nature. Yeah, and a lot of times they'll come into the office and we'll be their projected whoever, you know, it could be a parent figure, a teacher, whoever. And it just triggers, you know, a lot of times, they, just a lot of shame. And you can see a lot of times the tension that comes in and almost feel like a, a kid, you know, revealing something big. And as we greet them with like, no, it's okay. You know, this is normal. This is, this is common. We're comfortable with this. It's okay, you know, you could see it just, you know, they, they expand and it's a, a really, really nice thing. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, the amount of uh, time we all spend thinking about it and motivated by it, sex, I mean, and then also the amount of shame and that we don't want to talk about it on any intimate level, but you talk about it on, uh, well, particularly men, I think. I mean, I don't know. I don't hang out with groups of women a lot, but I feel like from what I understand, they're not talking about sex in the same way, but yet to talk about it in any kind of intimate way is like the most difficult thing. I mean, I feel like if you're with a group of men for more than 10 minutes, we're going to start talking about sex to some degree, but a very, you know, broad, uh, I don't know the adjectives. I'm not as smart, but it's going to be like, I'd bang her. I wouldn't mind banging his, but I'd like to do to her, but it's not going to be, man, I really had a hard time getting it up with my wife the other day. You know what I mean? So it's really is a fascinating thing that we talk about it so much without ever really talking about it in any serious way, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a perfect description, because when you start to try and talk about it in a serious way, you can see the shift into like discomfort and vulnerability. Right. Yeah. And again, I mean, I have a lot of female friends, but I don't picture my lady friends being talking as vulgarly, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Yeah, with our partners too, we're oftentimes very surface level. How was it for you? Is good. How was it for you? Is pretty good. You know, what I mean, and then it's like, okay, great. And then that's the degree we'll go. Uh, maybe we'll do, you know, do it again tomorrow or or whatever. There's there's so much more we could talk about with, with our partner. Um, but like you said, it, for a group of people, it's it's very awkward and uncomfortable a lot of times to go into those those kind of experiences without like, oh my god, are they going to reject me, criticize me, look down on me, make fun of me? Right. Now, we got to start to wrap up here. I don't want to take too much of your time, but I want to ask about porn. I mean, you guys are in the sex field. I grew up, I'm 30, about to be 39. I grew up, you know, a couple of people had a tape here and there. Or you found something. It was more magazines. And even that was felt were hard to come by. I mean, it was I mean, the Sears catalog was something now it's and because of that, I've, I'm still not an I always feel like I'm virtue signaling. I've just never been into porn because my sexuality, I, I need to like relate to the person. To me, someone I know being naked was a turn on. That's like interesting to me. Uh, just a random woman, I have no, it just, I can't do it. I've tried to put myself there. It just does nothing for me. That's why like movie sex is like hotter to me because I've established a character for an hour and then I'm like, oh, wow, look at that. Mm-hmm. Um, which I don't think I'm better than people. I'm like, that's just how my brain works. I wish I could just watch random people fucking and it would be hot. But so now I think like 12 year old kids have access to porn. What is that doing? What is that going to do? Are you terrified or is this over a little overblown or is this going to be a serious, serious problem moving forward in our society? I do not think it's overblown at all. Um, I worked with kids for the first couple of years of my uh, career and 
it's, you don't think about how easily kids can access it. Cause Joe, you and I are about the same age and we couldn't access it like that. Like you open the computer and by accident, there's a pop-up that's porn. We had to search, we had to seek it out and like get to it. People come across it by accident and they're using it as education. So when you combine, I'm not gonna have a talk with you, but you're gonna see this crazy intense porn that even adults are struggling with. You know, we used to have the pizza guy that came to the door and the storyline <laughs> and leading up like you were talking about. And now we've just got boom, 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 flooding our brain with these feel-good chemicals and this super close-up shop of some type of penetration, for example. Our brains are not processing that in the same way that it processed pizza guy. And now we're 12. So there's a lot of factors that didn't exist when you and I were growing up that are gonna be huge factors in teaching kids about sexuality moving forward. Yeah, like you said, right, it's still and lacking, in addition to that, and lacking the sex education. Like it is definitely getting better. There are more sex therapists out there. There are more educators and stuff. But that in addition to the abundance of porn out there, it's, it, it can be, you know, it, it can be really tough. Like how do they end up learning to connect with themselves in a really healthy way and how to connect with someone else in a really healthy way? Yeah, it was funny. Last night I was at a comedy club and I was talking to a friend of mine who's a woman and she was made some joke about breasts and being jealous of a celebrity's breasts. And then she was like, well, who should I, I was like, that's a bit. And she was like, well, who's a good example of who to use as the celebrity who has great breasts. And again, I was like, I'm so bad with this. I don't, I've never been like, I'm into the, I was like, I don't know. Like I've always liked Parker Posey, which is embarrassing, but like, I'm like, I don't know, Scarlett Johansson, but we know her boyfriend. So it was a weird thing. But anyways, we all started Googling and I typed in best celebrity breasts and I went to images and it was just porn. It was like full nudity. And I was like, whoa. And it was like, a, you know, fully naked bush. And I'm like, this is insane. Like I literally wrote celebrity breasts or something. And like, you know, you scroll and I'm like, this is just full nudity, full spread on my iPhone. So it made me think like, if you have a 13 year old, I mean, you're just dude, I guess you got to have a, some kind of sex talk early. I don't know. I don't. I haven't thought about it. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly how it works, but I'll hear from parents that the kid is just playing a regular video game and then all of a sudden like porn is popping up or someone someone sending them something in some way and um, it's out there and it's easily accessible and easy to stumble on accidentally and then all of a sudden trigger something and um, be very confused. And their parents' response to a kid stumbling on that is a big deal too. How do the parents respond? Are they shaming the kid and yelling at the kid, criticizing the kid? Or is that a good opportunity to educate and connect with their kid around a very natural thing? Yeah, and I, I think about, and I, I promise I'll wrap up in a second, but I think about this term uh, that I love, hedonistic adaptation, about the idea of you buy a giant house and within a few months, that's just your house. You're not excited, so you gotta mm-hmm. buy something else. And that must be obviously existing with porn as well. I mean, I have it just in my own sexual fantasy. You go, well, I don't wanna just have, you know, regular. you watch missionary sex when you're 12, you're like, oh my God, this is insane. But after eight months, I imagine you're like, let's take it to another level. And before you know it, you have some really dehumanizing shit going on, yep. uh, which I imagine will also be an issue. Yeah. Bert Kreischer actually does a bit on that too that I loved about how like he's going through porn and trying to find something that catches his attention. And it was like, I think for example was girl and girl. He goes, what am I, 12? And keeps moving. Right? right, right. And then what does that lead you to? Yeah, exactly. And then you're 60 years old trying to have, you know, a 48 person gangbang on a whatever, you know, whatever it is. So 
that's put that in the pile of huge problem that I don't want to solve. And this is what we were talking about earlier. I have to compartmentalize that I don't have to take on all the world's anxiety and the parents' anxiety, I guess. But right. I wouldn't want to. I'll put that in the pile of climate change and whatever else of like, well, <laughs> we're going to have to just deal with that at some point. Guys, this has been amazing. I, I could keep going. It just flew by. I appreciate you guys. Is there anything you yeah, guys wanted to talk about? Absolutely. Honored to be here. Loved it. Loved it. Thank oh, you. Oh, good. Did you, anything you guys wanted to talk about we didn't? get to or I, I steered the ship away from these for a long time i hope is there anything you want to add um no i think we're pretty good i think we're good all right great miranda do you have something no it's been great thank oh, you so awesome yeah maybe we'll do it again thank you guys so much do you guys want to plug anything you guys are just like civilians you don't even have podcasts and shit or do you have things to plug <laughs> no pie. i got a website joshcohentherapy.com and email joshcohentherapy at gmail.com if anyone has any questions or uh, wants to talk about anything that we talked about today, you know, please feel free to reach out. Awesome. And are you guys solid booked? Because I know a lot of people have reached out asking about therapists and my therapist says I'm overbooked right now. I mean, is it, is that slowing down or is it still filled up? <laughs> I would yeah, not say very, very busy, very, very busy right now. Yeah. But it's always that. worth reaching out because some people do wait lists. So you never yeah, know. Yeah. People have been moving a ton, which plays a factor during mm-hmm. COVID since they can do remote work. absolutely all right awesome guys this was so fun i appreciate it and uh yeah thanks very much thank you mindful metal jacket is hosted by comedian joe list produced by joe list edited by matt kleinschmidt executive producers robert kelly and matt kleinschmidt for the laugh button podcast